Well, hello again, everybody. This is Christian Basar with another episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Um, so what we're going to be doing is something a little different. Uh, we're going to be talking not so much about history, but about modern politics and what's been going on in the news lately. Specifically, I'm going to be talking about the incident on November 25th, 2018, in the Kerch Strait between Russian and Ukrainian naval forces. So we'll be going into that, but first I would like to just um, talk a little bit about a project I have planned. This podcast episode, I want to turn it into the first episode of a podcast, a new podcast that I wanted to start, uh, talking about strategic studies. Uh, strategic studies, military history in general, and perhaps talk about uh, uh, armaments, weapons, their influence on warfare, and also talking about modern geopolitical events. So, for example, how does one country? Why is one country doing this? So, analyze analyzing those from a from a strategic standpoint. So, this is something I would like to start very soon, and I anticipate having this uh, episode be the first episode of that particular podcast. So as I work that out, I will be mentioning that more later on. So, but uh, for now, this will be an episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Now, I do want to uh, give a perhaps a little bit of a disclaimer or a little bit of caution here. This Kurt Strait incident started on uh, November 25th, 2018. And as of now, December 3rd, uh, so it's just over a week later. So just keep in mind that uh, these developments are, the situation is developing. And every day you search up, uh, look up Kurt Strait incident or Ukraine or something um, on the news and you'll see some new events. So obviously there's, there things could change from the time that we record this podcast. So this will be an analysis and some commentary on the Kurt Strait incident as of December 3rd. So let us talk now about the incident itself. On November 25th, 2018, three Ukrainian naval ships were heading from Odessa to Mariupol. This would force them to go around the Crimean Peninsula, which had been annexed to Russia in 2014. Russian FSB uh, ships, and the FSB is the Russia's main intelligence arm, but it is also responsible for border protection. So Russian FSB ships fired upon and seized these three Ukrainian ships, uh, which consisted of a tug and two light patrol ships. The tug was also rammed. So after the Ukrainian ships were fired upon, they were also seized, and as of now, 24 Ukrainian crew members are in Russian Russian hands, Russian custody, and three had been reported wounded. Some have even been charged in Russian criminal courts. And simultaneously, as this was happening, two other Ukrainian ships moved out from Mariupol. So now, before I proceed further, I figure I feel that it's necessary to talk a little bit about geography. So if you have a map of Ukraine, you have at the very bottom, there is the Crimean Peninsula, which was added to the Russian Federation in 2014. And so, but to the northwest of this is the Ukrainian city of Odessa. And also to the northeast is the city of Mariupol. So there are two, two uh, seas involved here. So there is the Black Sea, which borders Crimea and southern Ukraine, but then there's also the Sea of Azov, which is kind of an inland sea. Uh, it's not considered international waters, but more an inland sea of both Ukraine and, and Russia. So, and Mariupol borders this Sea of Azov. Now, between 
between this uh between these two little oceans there is where Crimea very nearly touches the the Russian border uh at the Krasnodar Oblast so so there's this there's this point and that part is called the Kerch Strait the Kerch Strait so it's a very narrow narrow strait where if Ukrainian ships wanted to go from Odessa to Mariupol to enter the black to enter the Sea of Azov they have to go through this Kerch Strait so that gives you a sense of the geography so now when these three Ukrainian ships were moving from Odessa to Mariupol at the same time two other Ukrainian ships were moving out from Mariupol so in response Russia blockaded the Sea of Azov as well as seizing those three ships from from Odessa. Russia blockaded the Sea of Azov by placing a ship there. Now, here's here's the thing where this is where it's different. In May 2018, just a few months ago, there was a, a bridge constructed called the Kerch Bridge or the Crimea Bridge, and it it's a land connection between Crimea and mainland Russia again at the Krasnodar Oblast. So Russia blockaded this by putting a tanker underneath that bridge. Eventually it was open to civilian traffic afterwards, but for a time it was blockaded. And as of December 3rd, Russia has not yet released the ships or the sailors that are in its in its custody. Uh, so very soon after this incident, Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko asked for the declaration of martial law in Ukraine, and he cited a supposed massive land, Russian land invasion as the threat. And the Rada, or Ukrainian Parliament, approved this action the next day on November 26, 2018. So this martial law was not meant to be permanent. It's meant to last for 30 days, so till late uh, late December. And it was only going to be active within 10 of Ukraine's 27 regions. And these 10 regions were going to be those regions that bordered Russian Federation and also a Moldovan region. Uh, there's a Moldovan region known as Transnistria. And so there's some pro-Russian um, factions, if you will, there. And also there are some Russian troops there. So Ukraine has cited the threat of a Russian land invasion and martial law has been declared here. And according to the Kiev Post, possible measures under Ukrainian martial law could include things such as increased security, curfews, bans on peaceful protest, government confiscation of property, suspension of electoral campaigning, this is very relevant, and also even the banning of the sale of alcohol. So the the then going back far enough, we, we really need to consider, or we really need to remember that Crimea is not de facto not quite uh, part of Ukrainian territory anymore since the annexation or depending on your point of view annexation or reunification of Crimea to the Russian Federation this happened in 2014 um, uh, after the Euromaidan so this had this had happened so this is where the 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 sticky wicket is here's the rub the fact of Ukrainian ships moving between two Ukrainian cities isn't usually a problem but since the since the addition of Crimea to the Russian Russian Federation's territory this is the big difference so by crossing into into Russian waters this is where the this is where the problem was and now he will will be moving into some 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 comments and now that we've talked about the incident itself so such Ukrainian ship 
movements were common, uh, even after Crimea was annexed in 2014. And we should also go back to 2003. This was a treaty. To, uh, this was when a treaty was signed between the Russian Federation and Ukraine, um, and it considered the the Sea of Azov as as again an inland sea uh, owned by both Russia and Ukraine. Both, according to this treaty, both countries could freely use the sea, and inspection of ships was allowed. Now, after, in 2015, Russia imposed. A sort of a control mechanism where Ukrainian ships would have to notify Russian authorities and notify Russian authorities whenever they were they were crossing through and very interestingly uh, that in in September 2018 so just just a few months before this incident happened two Ukrainian naval ships passed through the Kerch Strait without incident supposedly after notifying the Russian authorities of the movement they were escorted in and there wasn't a problem. So there was something incredibly different on November 25th, and perhaps there will be more, we'll have to know more as time time reveals. But, and, and this is, although the incident on November 25th is not the first time that an incident has happened between Russian and Ukrainian authorities regarding, with regards to ship movements near Crimea after the annexation, both Russian and Ukrainian ships have been seized and, and inspected. But what's different about this time is that Russian and Ukrainian ships were were in direct contact. Direct. There was a military. There was there was fire, uh, uh, not exchanged, uh, but uh, the Russian ships uh, fired upon the Ukrainian ships, and they the Russian government admitted this. And so this was different because there was the because there was there's been fear lately of Russian covert actions. Little Green Men, for example. This is referring to the unidentified armed men who went through and took control of Crimea in 2014 before the, um, again, annexation or reunification, uh, depending on your point of view, and and also through pro-Russian rebels in the Donbass region, a civil war in Ukraine that has been act that has been going on since again 2014. But this was a direct action, um, and the Russians had claimed that they they didn't receive communication from Ukrainian ships passing passing through Russian waters, prompting them to think that this was a provocative action. And also in September 2018, the Ukrainian government had also announced the formation or of a Ukrainian naval base in the Sea of Azov. So that is another factor that is is also different and might prompt the Russian authorities to try and assert control over the Kerch Strait. And so, of course, after this incident, there was there has been a big war of words and a lot of argument and rhetoric. Russians fired upon ships, and as as we have noted, the Russian, the FSB, and the Russian government have admitted this. But they have said that the Russian ship, Ukrainian ships, acted provocatively. They have provinced more evidence of this, but as far as I know, I haven't seen like any uh, presentations on this. But that might come uh, come eventually. Uh, Ukrainian country, Western countries took Ukraine's side with a proposed expansion of sanctions uh, against Russia. Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, said that Russia's actions were, or were even not those of a civilized country. And what's interesting is that the Russian government predicted this response. They they said, okay, yeah, we we, we there was an action. We fired it. Uh, we fired upon some Ukrainian ships for violating our waters. 
and the Western response is against us, and that's predictable. And in fact, the Russian government, the Russian government's narrative is that Ukraine deliberately provoked this incident so that Ukraine could call for increased tensions with Russia and encourage greater Western sanctions against Russia. So according to the Russian idea that uh, Ukraine deliberately sent its ships to act provocatively, provoke an incident, and then call foul on Russian actions. And also it's interesting that this happened just before a G20 meeting in Argentina. And U.S. President Donald Trump responded uh, by cancelling a planned meeting with Putin at the Russian President Vladimir Putin at the G20 summit. However, Germany's Chancellor uh, Angela Merkel, who's and her relationship with Putin's Russia, Russia is arguably needed to be much more nuanced than that of other countries um, because of uh, uh, geographical position and uh, proximity to Russia. She suggested restraint, and she and unlike Trump, she met with Putin at the G20 summit and wanted to enter discussions in the so-called Normandy format. And just as a quick little note, the Normandy format is has been used in the past to negotiate relations between Russia and Ukraine, and is an attempt to enter negotiations and de-escalate situations. For example, the war in the Donbass. And the Normandy format has included Russia, Ukraine, Germany, and France. And so this format has been used in the past to negotiate the main ceasefire protocols in eastern Ukraine. And also uh, Angela Merkel suggested that this format be used to help de-escalate the situation after the Kerch Strait incident on November 25th. And even as of er, very early December, Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko, despite the fact that he has said that there are thousands of Russian troops on our borders, so therefore we need martial law, and even he has suggested in early December to enter this Normandy, enter negotiations with Russia through this Normandy format, with Germany and France also being involved. So going just going back to Ukraine's martial law situation, I think this is perhaps the most one of the most crucial parts of this story. It is it is limited. Uh, Petro Poroshenko originally suggested having 60 days of martial law, but it was reduced to 30 days. And again, it's not all across Ukraine. For example, the, the capital, uh, Kyiv, it's not under martial law. Um, it is it is active, martial law is active currently within 10 out of 27 uh, regions or oblasts. Um, and so, so, but there are some fears, and there have been fears of this expressed in Ukraine. The biggest part of this, in late March 2019, mere months from now, there will be an election, presidential election in Ukraine. And there are fears that Poroshenko will use this uh, martial law to impose greater restrictions, though he has promised he won't do so unless, quote, Russia invades Ukraine uh, in that hypothetical situation. And... And he has cited vague and some uh, some intelligence about this. Supposedly, a Russian tank is a uh, Russian tank base is 11 miles from the Ukrainian border, and he has quoted thousands of troops, uh, or Russian troops, ready to spew, spill into Ukraine. And as of December uh, December 3rd, Ukrainian troops have been moved to the border with with Russia as well. They have also banned um, Russian citizens uh, entering. 
uh, Ukraine that are of military age except for like for humanitarian reasons such as a funeral or something. So under this supposed threat of Russian full-scale Russian invasion, there, there are fears that Poroshenko is going to use this martial law situation as a way to increase his own power. For example, and, and they could look at Poroshenko's history. Um, his democratic record is somewhat spotty, causing him to receive criticism from, from his Western partners. And corruption is still a huge problem in Ukraine. Uh, people are concerned about living costs, and some have cited concerns about freedom of speech, religion, and language. And many of these issues are larger uh, problems that are not to be addressed here. Uh, but, however, there is a concession to be made to Poroshenko's credit in a way because the imposition of martial law was done through the parliament, and it was also a reduced time period from 60 to 30 days, and it was a limited geographical scope. So that could be a sign that democracy is working in Ukraine, but for those who fear the, the imposition of martial law, there's some merit to those fears as well. And also, remember the election. One of the things that martial law does in Ukraine is, as we said before, suspends election campaigning. And Poroshenko, he is very unpopular as well. I remember reading on Kiev Post of about, uh, about a week or two ago that he is considered one of the least popular electoral candidates for the position of Ukrainian president. And, and so being able to suspend election campaigning for 30 days and also being able to show a strong response to Russia because the, the relations with Russia are an probably the most pressing issue in Ukrainian politics so this way, by declaring martial law, sending troops to the border, he's able to say, look, I have showing a strong response to our Russian, Russian aggressors, our Russian enemies. And he has been criticized by his main, what some would consider his, his main electoral uh, opponent, uh, Ukrainian political veteran Yulia Timoshenko, has, has criticized him for she has of course criticized his imposition of martial law but she has also criticized him for in the past being a little being a little soft and one of one of the points that is very interesting to note that this is the first time that martial law has ever been declared in ukraine since since euromaidan and there was more intense fighting with pro-russian separatists in the donbass in 2014 2015 there were there were major battles going on there and in fact there were even there was even fighting in the previously mentioned Mariupol so but in all of those times martial law was not declared so many of Poroshenko's uh, uh, critics are saying why now why now and something that that should be kept in mind as well with this whole Kurt Strait incident and the re resulting resulting uh, consequences of with martial law and perhaps increased sanctions on Russia and everything. So in this whole incident, see these are some of my thoughts, who stands to profit? And myself and uh, and an opinion piece on Bloomberg, Bloomberg by Leonid Bershitsky kind of ask what advantage would would provoking that if Russia was, according to Poroshenko, if if Russia was going to provoke this action or this incident in the Kerch Strait, 
why what advantage does that really bring to Russia? The war between in, in eastern Ukraine between Kiev and pro-Russian rebels in the Donetsk and uh, Luhansk self-declared uh, Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics has been largely that war has been largely at a stalemate for a while and albeit with frequent shelling on both sides. And Russia used the destabilization of Ukraine during Euromaidan to justify actions in Crimea and support of the so-called anti-Maidan forces in the Donetsk region. But why would Russia act now? now one would say that, and, and it's certainly true, I believe, that Russia has been asserting control over the Kerch Strait now that there's a, a land bridge and so those two, so Crimea and mainland Russia are connected by the bridge. So, and this idea of seizing ships and maintaining control and being able to easily blockade the, the Sea of Azov just simply by moving a tanker there, that certainly fits in with the idea that Russia would be wanting to assert control over, over the, the Kerch Strait and thus the Sea of Azov and perhaps hurt Ukraine's economy by blocking by blockading uh, access to the Sea of Azov and and so on, but but as but again, the going back to September 2018, just a few months ago, two Ukrainian ships were able to move through the Kerch Strait and there was no problem. So so that so my question is, what would Russia stand to gain from deliberately provoking an action, saying, "Oh, there are three ships moving in," and Let's, let's attack them, right? And so one could argue that Ukraine or Poroshenko have more to gain than Russia in this latest incident. Russia got condemned internationally for firing upon the Ukrainian ships and seizing them, as well as for blockading the Sea of Azov. Uh, this is probably going to lead to increased sanctions. And also, one thing to keep in mind as well, what about the risk to Russia? If Russia was deliberately going to go over there, see these three ships, attack them, and seize them, there, this incident did not involve the taking of land. It involved three small ships and two dozen sailors. There's not much reward for Russia to plan a seizure, seizure of ships. The Russian government and, and the Russian government explicitly stated that the West would condemn Russia for any kind of action. So deliberately, may I say, conspiring to take Ukrainian ships just for that, their own sake, does not seem like a worthwhile risk on their part. On the other hand, the opposite operation to secure and eventually annex Crimea was a huge risk politically, and the resolution of this will probably take decades, if not longer. Um, and it has greatly poisoned re Russia's relations with, mo with much of the rest of the world, and especially with Ukraine. But there was also a reward uh, for seizing Crimea as well. A large section of land with a largely Russian population was added to the Russian Federation, and it was a largely popular move in Russia, especially amongst fears of in 2014 of Euromaidan, which Russian narratives were saying there was a fascist coup in Kiev that had brought down a Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, that was more friendly to Moscow. And also another another way in which Russia has shown great risk, but also has received some kind of a reward um, geopolitically. Uh, since 2014, they've been they've been sort of allies or supporters of the 
of the pro-Russian separatist groups in eastern Ukraine. So the risks of this are being seen as supporting a foreign rebel power, being seen as an aggressor, and also adding to Russia's reputation worldwide as a, as a meddler in the affairs of another country. But there's also some reward here. They have the ability to have influence on Ukraine. They can push for, for things such as federalization or otherwise lessened power, lessened power of the Ukrainian government, which is currently a rival of Moscow's. So, so Russia's actions in Crimea and support for pro-Russian factions in Ukraine had risks, but rewards of these risks were greater than, than what would be on November 25th if their plan was to literally just take three ships and, uh, and, and, a, few, and a few sailors. So now, there are of course two different narratives here. The Russians are saying that uh, Petro Poroshenko and Ukraine deliberately uh, prov provoked these Russian ships and therefore were going to provoke an incident and then that would be that would allow or that would justify Poroshenko to impose martial law, ban election, ban election campaigning for a little while and call on the West for help and san further sanctions against against Russia and also embarrass Putin abroad just before the G2020 summit. And then the Ukrainian narrative and many in the West are also saying that, well, Russia has just deliberately caught, just deliberately been an aggressor. They've taken some ships and they violated international law by seizing these three Ukrainian ships and also for blockading access to the, to the Sea of Azov. I'm personally not a fan of conspiracy theories. Sometimes it could be easy to fall into thinking that everything is planned, everything has a plot behind it, um, and everything is a conspiracy. Sometimes hindsight is not hindsight is not always 2020. When we see an incident that happens, and then we think, oh, automatically it happened because of this, and then there was this cause, there was this effect, and everything. But something that is very important, and this is for uh, important for strategic studies military history, but also for just for life in general. This world is chaotic, and things sometimes just happen. Escalations happen. It should be remembered that Ukrainian ship movements were happening at the same time. The three were moving from Mar from Odessa to Mariupol, and were going through, so kind of cutting into the Kerch Strait from the south, but then at the same time, two other ships were moving from Mariupol at the same time. If Russian claims are true that these Russian ships did not notify the Russian authorities of of this ship movement, that could send Russian, um, certainly border guards and also Russian planners uh, into into a bit of a bit of a panic. So then it's those ships are stopped and the blockade is is set up. So the human factor is very important to remember. The Ukrainian intelligence service, the SBU, has claimed that there is radio radio interceptions where there was coordination between Russian forces. Well, of course, there's going to be coordination if something is happening. Their Russian units are going to be talking to to each other. Um, so, again, it is very important to ask about what is different about this particular case. Uh, other times, Ukrainian ships have moved through the same area without incident. And why would Russia plan to deliberately attack Ukrainian ships or open fire on them other than an attempt to protect against a, uh, what, what they saw 
as a provocative action. And I just want to comment a little bit about the 2003 treaty about the Sea of Azov. Um, David Larder and Matthew Bodner wrote for Defense News on November 28th, and they wrote a very interesting article entitled, The Sea of Azov Won't Become the New South China Sea, and Russia Knows It. So the South China Sea, it's, it's, uh, China has claimed waters in this area, and these claims conflict with, conflict with those of multiple of many of Chinese, China's neighbors, uh, the Philippines, Vietnam, and etc. So Southeast Asia has been a very, a very tense area to watch, and there are no formal treaties in China's, China's favor. But with the Sea of Azov, only two countries have shorelines on this body of water, Russia and Ukraine. And by the 2003 treaty, the sea is officially considered belonging to both countries, as we said before. So both Ukrainian and Russian shipping can go through there without, without, um, without restriction. And, but also they have the rights to, of, of inspection. And the annexation of Crimea in 2014 changed the situation, especially as Russia tri has tried to consolidate the area with the Kerch Bridge and henceforth, defense its, henceforth de defend its control of that area and that bridge. But the 2003 treaty is still in force, and there's yet no plan to scrap it. And there is Russia did violate that treaty by temporarily blocking the Kerch Strait. Um, blocking access to the Sea of Azov. But by the same token, Russia has the right to use the strait as well. So the key point to remember is that Russia claims that the Ukrainian ships entered Russian waters. And also, according to international legal experts contacted again by Defense News, Russia had no legal authority to actually seize the Ukrainian ships by the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Russia may have theoretically had the right to expel the Ukrainian ships if they were, if the claim is that they were entering Russian waters, they had to theoretically had the right to expel the ships, to force them to turn back, but not necessarily to seize them. So this is certainly something where international law gets into the situation, and the it's a very interesting situation where the status of Crimea, whether it's part of Ukraine or part of Russia, the 2003 treaty regarding the Sea of Azov has not changed. But Russia's attempts to consolidate control over that area has changed that. And, and there's something important here about a naval strategy here. And so talking, speaking of that consolidation, and so this is where we'll talk about the Kerch, Kerch Bridge. Uh, so what, I, I talked a little bit before about risk of the, the addition of Crimea to the Russian Federation. Um, there's that risk, of course, the geopolitical risk. And Russia will never lose that reputation for, uh, of being an aggressor, no matter what. And who knows what it will take to shake that, that reputation, right? But the, I, but Crimea was also a bit of an economic problem. It was another area for Russia to try and develop. And Kir the Kerch Bridge, completed in March, uh, was a way to develop the area. It costs $3.7 billion to build, but it also makes it easier for Russians to simply drive from the Krasnodar region into Crimea. And, but, so it's a sign of a great achievement, a sign of moving forward in Crimea's, according to the Russian view, reunification with the rest of Russia. So Crimea also is a pulse, uh, popular tourist destination. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of history and a warm climate, 
So the bridge is a way to to economically develop Crimea and also perhaps mitigate some of that risk of actually of annexing it. Um, and strategically, uh, the Kerch Bridge has uh, aided Navy maneuvers. And this is not a wide open sea. Again, the Kerch Strait is not wide. It's 19 kilometers. But, and it's not the wide open sea such as in the Pacific or Atlantic Ocean. Huge bodies of water which have vast distances and lots of room for ships to maneuver freely. Um, with a bridge there, it's, it's not a wall, but it does physically restrict movement, especially when a tanker can just be parked there to provide a, an improvised blockade. So it's easy to blockade if Russia deems it necessary. And with the Ukrainian port of Mariupol on the Sea of Azov behind that bridge, it's strategic, the bridge is strategically important in case of a hypothetical military confrontation between Russia and Ukraine. And so keep in mind uh, that, again, we're in a week after this incident and we it, things could change after the recording of this podcast. So what happened? We should know more. Uh, did Ukraine actually send ships to provoke the Russians? What was the FSB, uh, FSB crew thinking was happening? And we need to remember that while planned activities happen, so accidents and snap decisions do happen as well. And so there, there's allegations of conspiracy on either side. And when you're thinking about conspiracies, we have to work them out, walk out the logic. There has to be a benefit of some kind uh, if we're talking about any kind of conspiracy. It's one of the, the, the idea of having a reward after risk. The rewards have to out somehow outweigh the risks. Now, th this will not be applied perfectly because people do make bad decisions. People do miscalculate risks and rewards. And so if you take the side that Russia wanted to just be aggressive and uncivilized, as Nikki Haley may claim, is Russia really willing to in violate international law just to seize three ships when Ukraine has moved? And this is especially a pertinent question of when Ukraine has moved ships through the Kerch Strait before without problems. So why... Why would it be now? Uh, now, if you take the position that Poroshenko planned this so that he could put Ukraine under martial law and manipulate the election, again, as I've said, as I said before, this is understandable in some ways. Timing is perhaps suspect. Um, Poroshenko again is very unpopular in the electoral polls with an election in four months. And why declare martial law now and not before? when fighting between pro-Russian forces and Ukrainian forces was, was more intense than they are now and the Minsk protocols were not in place. And Poroshenko's evidence of a Russian invasion, he has said that, you know, there's a Russian base 11 miles from our border, there are thousands of troops there. My question about this is, why suddenly declare this after a serious incident in the Kerch Strait? Why not come out with that evidence first and then propose emergency measures? Uh, in the past, there's been Russian evidence of Russian interference and through U.S. satellite photos, Russian soldiers' Instagram accounts even, locating them within Ukraine. So why not you, why has not Poroshenko used the same methods to prove the, the same hypothetical threat now? That the same threat exists now, and, but why wait for an incident like the Kerch Strait and say that, oh, this is, this is um, an act of aggression against our naval ships? Oh, and by the way, we have this big invasion force on our borders. So one could could suspect Poroshenko's 
actions actions there. However, uh, the fact that martial law was passed through the parliament, it was passed through the Rada, and it was also given a reduced time. And also, we're talking about risk, and I, I talked about risk and re versus reward. Why would Russia seize three ships? Just because. Um, and the same same question could be asked of, of, of Poroshenko. If Poroshenko really wanted to provoke Russia into war, it's a very big risk. Russia is far more powerful militarily than Ukraine. This is particularly true on the seas. Um, after Crimea went to Russia, along with its naval naval assets, and though Ukraine aspires to join the West, it is not a naval member, and would and there there's a serious there's some serious questions. Would the West really go to war to defend Ukraine for a non-NATO member? It didn't take up arms to defend Georgia when it was at war with Russia for five days in 2008. Though Georgia was heading in a pro-Western direction. And so some could say that the same could happen in Ukraine. So if you take the view that Poroshenko just wants war with Russia, that I would find that somewhat unbelievable too, because it's a huge, that would be an incredible risk for him. And also uh, he has proposed as of December 2nd of, of entering negotiations with Russia again over, over this incident. So, Either way, the debate over the Kerch Strait incident and the whole region is going to continue for a very long time. And the fundamental disagreement over Crimea and how to deal with it is the is the foundational part of this. Russia has reunited, so uh, so to speak, uh, according to Russian narratives, Russia has reunited Crimea to itself. And since the referendum of 2014, which did this. It consider, Russia considers the peninsula to be part of its territory. So the FSB will naturally aim to protect what are considered Russia's borders. Ukraine and most, and most countries in the world do not recognize Russian control of this area. And it considers this region to be occupied uh, by invaders. With the Kerch Bridge existing, this puts pressure on Ukraine. And, and as seen, this allows Russia to consolidate control. Crimea is a disputed territory, and so will its waters. Even though under the 2003 treaty, and this treaty is still active, which again technically allows both Ukrainian and Russian ships to act and traverse the Kerch Strait and enter the Sea of Azov. And of course this Kerch Strait incident fits into the wider context of Russian-Ukrainian relations. Over the last over the over the centuries, there's been a lot of strife and enmity between these two nations, starting everywhere from the Bogdan Klimitsky Agreement in the 16th 17th century, uh, the to the Holodomor in 1932-1933, the Holodomor famine, and even the very recent controversy over the independence of a Ukrainian Christ, uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Christian Church. And so the debate about the Kerch Strait incident could carry on for years, but it is part of a wider Russian-Ukrainian relationship that has been, and I could say can, will continue to be a challenge for centuries. And just one final note, it's, it's all, the Kerch Strait incident is it's kind of, in a way, it's somewhat surprising. Uh, Robert Legvold, he is a political science at Columbia University, and with the 
Crimea going to Russia and being added to Russia and also the with the construction of the Kerch Bridge, it makes sense that the Kerch Strait would become a new sort of hot zone in Ukrainian-Russian relations. And again, we've mentioned some previous shipping incidents in which Ukrainian and Russian ships have been seized. But mostly these have involved civilian, civilian ships. But for years, since 2014, anxiety was focused on the prospects of Russia invading Western Europe through the NATO member Baltic states, or maybe perhaps expanding past the pro-Russian Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics in eastern Ukraine, or election interference. So when this Kurt Strait incident happened on November 25th, it's somewhat different from what to what many were thinking would happen over for the last few years. So it's definitely a surprise, somewhat of a surprising uh, situation. So we will certainly have to see how how it all works out. 